And I think truthfully, sometimes if you look at the stereotypes of like what it means to be like a meditator, I mean, it's not super appealing, right? Like we don't all want to like shave our heads and change our names to Shanti and like live in an ashram in India. That's what I love about what's happening with meditation now is that it's, there's a different approach to it for, a, for every different type of person that there is in the world. Hello friends, from Women's Health Australia, this is Uninterrupted, a series where we chat to women doing brilliant things in the wellness space. I'm Lisa Gebilagen, deputy editor and someone who may suffer from some perfectionist tendencies, just like I'm guessing many other women in the world, maybe even you listening right now. Someone else who does, or correction, did, suffer from the same affliction is self-confessed recovering perfectionist and meditation teacher, Caitlin Cady who admits her own obsession with overachieving was making her more burnt out than a roach in Snoop Dogg's ashtray. Yeah, she might live in Byron Bay, via the US, but she's not your usual meditation teacher. For one, she loves hip-hop as much as she does Tibetan singing bowls. She also owns a Byron Byron and a street mag, and she has a new book out now, Heavily Meditated, your down-to-earth guide to learning meditation and getting high on life, where she proves, and I quote, that meditation doesn't have to be boring as shit or narrated by an annoying, long, drawn-out meditation voice. And if that wasn't impressive enough, she's done all this while raising three small kids. So how does she do it all without letting her perfectionist and overachieving sides take over? Well, you'll have to keep listening to find out. So, Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you call yourself a meditation junkie. And you'd like to help people get high on life. But there was a time in your life that you weren't addicted to meditation. You were addicted to things like perfectionism. Can you tell me about that time in your life? Yeah. So like a lot of women, I struggled with depression and an eating disorder and eventually chronic disease. I had dengue fever and Lyme disease and mono, which I think we call glandular fever here. So all of that I really feel was rooted in this perfectionism sort of type A. And I really wore that as a badge of honor, like so many of us do, is that I'm a perfectionist. But what it did to me was wore me down and kind of Um, kept me in this adrenal state where I eventually became completely burned out and my body shut down. So for me, so much of the gift of meditation has been unwinding those patterns Mm. and beginning to change my relationship with perfection and the need to be perfect. So tell me, how old were you when you were talking about this time of your life? So between sort of my freshman year of college or university. So like 18 is when I first started experiencing depression and an eating disorder developed. Yeah. And then I became chronically ill around 20. Um, so two years later, I had Lyme disease and I had Lyme disease for 10 years. Mm. So the interesting thing about a chronic diagnosis is that most Western doctors will sort of just tell you like you're stuck with it and this is a life sentence. And for me, I just, I surrendered to that for a time. And then I just went, no, I'm just, I'm not going to live this way. I didn't want to be sick for the rest of my life. So I really threw myself into exploring all of the different modalities of healing from Chinese medicine to naturopathy and getting vitamin 
IVs, which is now like very much in vogue, but you know, 10, 15 years ago, it wasn't a thing. Yeah. Changed my diet, did all of these things and saw, made huge strides and saw great progress, but was still feeling really sick or would still sort of succumb to the Lyme disease periodically. And what I realized was that the shift I needed to make wasn't physical, it was mental. Mm. And that's where meditation came in. Was there a moment where you thought, hang on, all these things that I'm trying aren't working? Like, do you remember the specific day or moment? Yeah, I don't remember a specific moment where I made that choice, but I remember a specific moment where I decided to commit to meditating. And change happens when you get fed up with your own bullshit, right? Yeah, that is so true. And so I was just like fed up. I yeah. didn't want to be that way anymore. I didn't want to live that way. And as much as it was a huge part of my identity was being this overachiever and this perfectionist. And, mm. you know, a lot of women, it's like we wear it like a badge of honor. And that's that's a slippery slope. So I had to make a choice and I had to hold myself accountable. And I think that that's such a hard thing to do. But when you decide you want to be well, the cost of making that change needs to be worth the outcome on the other side, right? So yeah. I, I had to be willing to give up that identity and surrender that bullshit to become well again. So how did perfectionism manifest in your life? Saying yes to everything, which is still, you know, I'm a, I say I'm a recovering perfectionist because I <laughs> still have my moments. But, you know, saying yes to everything, overwork, being sort of compulsive about eating, exercise, achievement. I worked in sales for a long time and you put a goal in front of me and I'm like, I get that ire the tiger vibe <laughs> happening and I'm yeah. just like, Whoa. yeah, I had to really recognize all of that in myself as this like, I think perfectionism, as Elizabeth Gilbert puts it, is um, fear in fancy shoes and a mink coat. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just really afraid. And so I was doing everything to try and control the environment around myself and be without fault. Mm. Makes sense. It does make sense. And I remember reading in your book, you suggested that a lot of people are afraid to let go of perfectionism because then they'll feel like their whole worlds will fall down around them. And it's about losing that control. Because I feel like when you talk about, say, your past as a salesperson, you have that sales goal and you just went after it. That probably was great for your career, right? Hmm. Yeah. So then how do you then make that mental leap from going the perfectionism wasn't what helped me get that, get to that goal. Is that just my skills that were great, but I could let go of needing to be the perfect version of me. Yeah, well, I think perfectionism is such an interesting one. It's, you know, what Oprah calls the disease to please. And I think that it is a disease. And again, sort of the same thing of like, you have to be tired of your own bullshit. So you have to look at like, what is perfectionism keeping me from? What is fear keeping me from in my life? And that I think reveals a lot about how you are not living to your full potential. Because if we need to be perfect, and if we have to have everything figured out, and if we have to have the perfect plan before we can even begin, we'll never begin. Mm -hmm. Because it's perfection doesn't exist, right? So it's this sort of clever strategy for keeping ourselves safe. Hmm. And I think that if you want to live a brave life, you have to let go of this idea that you can be perfect. Yeah. So how did you make the link between that perfectionism and then what was manifesting in your body? 
Um, good question. I think the just the burnout. You know, mm. I was completely physically burned out, and I could see that it was a mental, it was a manifestation of what was happening for me mentally. The interesting thing is the way that our nervous system and our brain work together, right? So if we are, we're all wired with this um, nervous system, which is really handy for running away from saber-toothed tigers, but when we can't discern between a text message and a tiger, our life starts to spiral out of control and we're constantly running from things that aren't actually threats. Yeah. So that's the really juicy connection and the thing that meditation offers us is a way of moderating our nervous systems, which are kind of the link between the brain and the way that we're perceiving the environment and the, the inner environment as well. And I can, feel, I can feel the difference. When I make a mental shift, I can feel the difference in my body. What does the feeling feel like? It feels like um, calm. And, and f- freedom from being afraid mm-hmm. all the time. Because really all we're talking about here is fear. And um, that, is not, that is not a joyful feeling, right? Like feeling anxious or fearful or um, scared. Those feelings don't invite us to open up. It feels really contracted. So the opposite of that to me is this openness and this you feel more courageous. You feel more grounded and comfortable in your own skin Um, and you can see things more clearly because you're not looking for threats yeah you're not on high alert there are a few things that you said earlier that I'd love to go back to Mm -hmm. you mentioned that you suffered from Lyme disease and that's been in the media quite a lot lately since Justin Bieber has revealed that he also suffers from Lyme disease can you explain to our listeners what exactly that is and then because, too, in Australia, doctors don't really recognize it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm American, as you may have picked mm-hmm. up. And I contracted Lyme disease in America, where it was very much recognized at that time. So it's an infection from a tick. And the symptoms can be, they can be subtle and they can be extreme. So for me, the first sign was um, that my glands were really swollen and I felt achy. Um, and I had a tick bite that just didn't heal properly. You know, for me, it meant I felt I was sick all the time and my immune system was just smashed. So if I was around someone who was sick, I got sick. And all of the, I experienced all of these changes in my body where um, things that normally wouldn't affect me in the same way, it was like my reaction to everything was really sensitized. So alcohol or even my hormonal cycles, I became much more sensitive and for the first time had sort of like symptoms of pain when I was menstruating or ovulating. For some people, it can progress to facial paralysis and it's, it's very debilitating. So, yeah. you know, you can be in bed for weeks at a time. And you said you suffered from it for about 10 years. Yeah, I had it for 10 years. So I tested negative for it just over nine years ago, which was I I had a goal of being Lyme disease free before I started my family. Oh, yeah. uh, With my husband. And that I was able to achieve that, which was which was really special and exciting. It is possible. And I think it's a really important message for people to hear because we hear so many stories about it not being real, it not being acknowledged Mm -hmm. and it not being treatable. And I think those are so disempowering. And if you're already sick, 
it's you need you need to hear positive messages of of what is possible. So I'm very proud to say that I did I was able to achieve that. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you. You also mentioned too that you tried a lot of different treatments before you found that meditation was what really worked for you. Mm-hmm. In your book, you mentioned too that you slept in wet socks. Yes. <laughs> what was that yeah, about? I don't. I was <laughs> like, you drank really hot ginger tea, took a hot bath. So those are both like heat. I was heating the system. Mm. And then, yeah, you put wet socks on and then you put a heavy pair of socks over those and climb into bed. It was something my naturopath, who's brilliant, yeah. had. Sh- we were just throwing everything at this. Yeah. And it was a... I think a technique for detoxifying the body, like creating similar to like when we go into a sauna and we're creating an environment where our body can sweat and detoxify. But, but the at home version, I was committed girl. (laughs) Yeah. Committed. Was there anything that you came across that you were like, "Mm, even this is a bit too much for me to try? Not really. I'm pretty adventurous when it comes to (laughs) that. I'm like, I'm still just kind of like a junkie for like, and I live in Byron Bay, so it's like yeah. great because somebody's like, try, "Oh, have you tried this?" I'm like, <laughs> no, what's? Give me the phone number. I'm going. Um, so no, there was nothing. There was really nothing that I tried that I didn't feel like contributed to my healing and meditation. You know, single handedly, I don't think meditation. You know, I don't want to give the impression that that was the thing that like. Um, the only thing that you need to do to heal. It's just that for me, it was a key component Mm. in um, looking at wellness holistically. And I had done all of the physical work, but I hadn't done the mental work. So I changed my diet. I'd, you know, like done these IVs. I would done the supplements, blah, blah, blah. So it was kind of just like the thing that the thing that tipped me over the edge into the into the healing field, if you will. I think that's a very important distinction to make too, that you were still doing the physical side mm. of things. And yeah. then bringing meditation in made it more like a holistic approach to your health. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's that mind-body connection that we're seeing, you know, science is validating all of these sort of like ancient practices, right? Like I yeah. love um, Joe Dispenza says that, you know, science is the modern language of mysticism. And I think that's true. So much of, you know, what we're learning in science now is is matching up with these sort of ancient or traditional techniques, whether it's meditation or, or you know, healing processes like acupuncture and things like that. So people listening now are probably thinking you tried meditation and got it straight away, <laughs> which I know is not the case. No. <laughs> Can you give people a realistic view of what happened with your experience? Yeah. You know that saying like, um, never trust a skinny chef. Yeah. It's like never <laughs> trust like someone to teach you about meditation who like has a calm mind naturally. I, this didn't come easily to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I found it really, really hard to still my mind. And I thought that there were all of these things that made me ill-equipped for meditation. And what I've come to find out yeah. and what why I am like spreading this message far and wide is that there are so many myths about meditation that just aren't true. For example, you don't need a still mind. You don't need to be calm. You don't need a lot of time. And... I think knowing that makes meditation so much more inviting. So what were the ways that you thought you were ill-equipped to meditate? Well, I was 
busy. <laughs> we are all so busy. So busy. <laughs> I was like, I don't have time for this. Um, like, who has time to sit still and be quiet? So um, that time, yeah. A, that I was too busy, which is also not true. I was not too busy. I just <laughs> didn't want to make time or didn't value the time that it would take. That I needed a ton of time was not true because I, I think it's great if you can do 20 or 30 minutes twice a day. But I also think it's great if you can do five minutes once a day or five minutes twice a day. I always say that the benefits show up if you do. So if you could commit to five minutes a day for seven days a week, you will experience a benefit, and it's worth doing. And we all have five minutes a day, don't we? If you don't, don't have five <laughs> minutes a day, you need to reevaluate your life. Um, yeah, so time is a really interesting one. Um, the still mind thing was something that, you know, I'm just not good at this. I'm not good at meditation. Nobody's good at meditation. That's mm. the whole point. Yeah. And um, the mind doesn't want to get still. It's not designed to be still. Our mind is designed to be hypervigilant. It's there looking for threats all the time, which is fabulous, but not helpful all the time. And so we need to learn how to change our relationship with that. But it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you if your mind wanders. That's the whole point. Yeah, because I think people have this idea of meditation being a clear mind. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Absolute silence. Yeah. So that's that's not true. And um, <laughs> you don't – that doesn't need to be your goal. There's a meditation teacher by the name of Sally Kempton who calls it meditation sit-ups. And I just love that because you're just doing – you're in there just doing reps. You're just bringing your attention back. So your mind wanders. Oh, my mind's wandering. Bring it back to the focal point of meditation, which could be breath sound, sensation in the body, something that you're visualizing or a mantra that um, you're basically repeating or hearing again in your head. So all you have to do is bring your attention back to that as many times as it takes. And when you think about it that way, you know, it's like it's so much more approachable. Yeah, that's the process. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. It's, a, it's like, say, fitness wise, you wouldn't do a plank for a whole hour. Totally. But you do reps. Totally. This makes it easier yes. to grasp. Yes. I and like that. It's achievable. Yeah. It's achievable. So I think that's a really important one to know and to empower yourself with is, you know, you don't need a still mind. Um, I think some of the other myths are that, like, there's one way to do it. Mm. And there's, you know, one way is better than the other way. And I think, you know, what I offer in in my book is five different techniques, which are five different focal points. I call them gateway meditations. You okay. know how like bacon is the gateway meat for vegetarians? <laughs> These are like gateway meditations that will give you a taste of something that will then sort of like give you a clue about what style resonates with you. So for example, if you're a really visual person, mm. then visualization might be just easy for you and it might come naturally to you. So if you can find a focal point or a technique that just sort of works with who you are as a person and sort of what you lean into, it's going to make it a lot easier. You know, I, th I think some people, when they try and do a meditation on the breath, for example, which is a profound technique, and it's found in so many di different traditions around the world, and it's, it's a beautiful technique, but for some people, if you're just starting out and you tend to be anxious, watching your breathing might make you feel crazier. Yeah. Like it might actually make your wind you up instead of winding you down. So it might not be the best place to start with meditation. 
Um, another example is sound. So for some people, maybe people who are musical or who just really respond to music, listening to sounds can be a really beautiful gateway into presence. And again, all you're doing is bringing your attention back over and over again. So I think really honoring that there are many different approaches to meditation and one is not better than the other and giving yourself permission to experiment and see what works for you. That being said, you know, if you find something and you go, okay, visualization is my jam, dive into it and, and explore it deeply and check out all of the different sort of experiences that are available within that. And then you might revisit some of the other techniques later. So you might go, breath is going to freak me out. So I'm going visualization. You do that for a couple of months. And then you might find that when you circle back to breath, it's suddenly available to you in a way that it wasn't before. So you mentioned visualization, Mm -hmm. sound, and breath work. Mm -hmm. What are the other two gateways that you mentioned in your book? So sound breath, sensation in the body, visualization, and mantra. Mm. So that's not a complete picture of every meditation technique available to man. And many techniques combine those. I found it really useful to sort of divide them into those sort of categories so that it became accessible for us and it wasn't overwhelming. Yeah. And what I like too about your book, the way you formatted it, is it's a workbook too, so that people can see what works for them. I wanted to help other people and offer them a tool that I wished was available when I started learning to meditate. It was harder than it needed to be because I had to source information from so many different places. And I didn't feel that there was a resource available that spoke my language and boiled things down. I didn't have a lot of time. You know, I want, I was keen, but I didn't, you know, I didn't want to go sit in silence and eat rice for 10 days. Like I was yeah. just not there yet. Yeah. So the book is, I'm, I wrote it with your time in mind and giving people an opportunity to learn about meditation without having to yeah, retreat in silence for, or spend a paycheck on, on, you know, learning meditation because it can be expensive. Sometimes it's just about having all the tools you need available to you to fit it into your life. So with this book, we have worksheets, we have the guided meditation, so you get access to those um, when you buy the book, and then you've got all the information that you need. So you don't have to go like down a YouTube rabbit hole looking for mm-hmm. some, you know, meditation there, which can be scary. unless you want to waste your hours doing that (laughs) yes yes unless you do in fact have time to waste um so did a bit of googling (laughs) and I find your career a bit fascinating so um you opened up a nightclub in Byron Bay yes Woody's Surf Shack you got it yep you also ran a street mag yep called Byron Bazaar yes and you're quite entrepreneurial. Yes. How did you get to a point where you did all that to then writing a meditation book? Well, I've always loved to write. My dad was a writer, so I grew up reading and writing and being exposed to beautiful poetry and literature from a young age. I also I went to art school and studied printmaking, which is you know, was because I loved marrying image and word. But yeah, my career has been unconventional. I've 
done a lot of different things and I'm just a curious person. Mm -hmm. So it's been fun for me to sort of, yeah, just explore and how did I end up, like, how am I the, the meditating bar owner? Um, <laughs> <laughs> is This is what I'm so passionate about. You know, meditation, wellness, inspiring people to live to their full potential is what I'm super passionate about. And I don't think of this as a job. I think of it as my purpose. Mm. But I also think more people would have careers like mine if they let themselves and again, it's that perfectionism thing is like, I don't fit in a box and it can be confusing yeah. for people. But I think that if we allowed ourselves to freestyle our lives a little bit more, <laughs> more people would be like, wow, you know, uh, yeah, I've done all these like random divergent, seemingly divergent things. Mm. And yet you start to see, you start to know yourself better and better because you see the through line of how you show up and all of those different things and what you're able to contribute in all of those different arenas, if that makes sense. I like how you described yourself as a meditating bar owner because <laughs> I feel like that actually comes through in your writing. So great example, you talked about when you were burnt out, you said that you were more burnt out than a roach in Snoop Dogg's ashtray. Yes. It's a line that you don't necessarily expect in a meditation book. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what, I, um, that's what I really enjoyed about your writing. And I think it's great too, because I would say most of our listeners have this idea of what someone who's written a meditation book looks like, acts like, lives like. And you talked about perfection. It, it creates this goal of a, the perfect meditator that none of us can relate to or not many of us can relate to. Mm, yeah, I think it feels unachievable. Yeah. Um, and I think truthfully, sometimes if you look at the stereotypes of like what it means to be like a meditator, I mean, it's not super appealing. Right. Like we don't all want to like shave our heads and change our names to Shanti and like live in an ashram in India. <laughs> and that's OK. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the that's that's what I love about what's happening with meditation now is that it's there's a different approach to it for a, for every different type of person that there is in the world now. And it's becoming mainstream in a way where it is more accessible to people and mm. you can find someone who can tell you about it in a way that resonates with you and you can find people who you're like they're like me and they're meditating so I think it's yeah I think it's really exciting to see that because yeah 10 years ago it was like it was it was not looking super appealing was it mm -mm. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been trying to meditate and it has been <laughs> Uh, like over the space of a few years where I, I will do it for a few days in a row and then it'll drop off because I get so busy, like we were saying. Like how then do you focus? Well, I think it's great training for life, you know, that we well, – I was the queen of multitasking. So I was like, look how many things I can do at once. And <laughs> – That's me at work all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the interesting thing is like science is now showing us that not only is that a really inefficient way to work and it actually wastes a lot of energy because we're – every time that you shift to a different task, there's energy involved in like retraining your attention to that task. So it's, it's inefficient even though we think it's boss. But also – it's changing our brains 
and not in a good way. So it's really actually important to find opportunities to single task. And meditation is one example of that. Mm. So when we can sit and practice meditation, we're practicing bringing our attention back to one task, which is just whatever that focal point is. But then also off of the cushion, when you go back to life, it becomes easier and you get more comfortable with single tasking and you will find that you're so much more efficient. Yeah. So one of the tools I like to use that's not meditation that helps find focus is using the Pomodoro timer, which is it's a technique that's based on the idea that um, your brain works best in 25-minute increments with a five-minute short break in between. Mm-hmm. And then after you do f- uh, four of those 25-minute blocks, you take a 15-minute break. So there are all these apps you can download now. Um, I think the one I use is called Be Focused. And you can change the intervals. You can change the length. You can kind of customize it. But that's how I wrote the book. Oh, yeah? People are always like, how do you find time to do that? Like running multiple businesses and having three kids. And it's like Pomodoro timer, bro. (laughs) Um, So I would sit and commit to doing X number of Pomodoros a day. And the beauty of that is that you feel a great sense of achievement. Yeah. Even if you didn't successfully write anything that was worth anyone ever reading, it's like you sat and you you did the time, which is it's just a good lesson in life, right? Like the process is the point, not always the outcome. But also um, committing to doing the one thing for that 25-minute block is profound. And you will really move the dial on projects that you that you know you want to move the dial on if you commit to that. So the idea is um, to put the phone away, put that shit on airplane mode. Oh my god, how scary! Um, you know, shut down the email. Like, put all of those potential distractions aside. Let your coworkers know. You know, you could even like put a little sign up at your desk that's just like I'm single tasking right now come back in 15 minutes or whatever and put some noise canceling headphones on and get busy and you will find that you get into a flow state by allowing yourself the space to focus that will generate results that are far beyond what you can accomplish when you're multitasking yeah and 25 minute segments seem easy enough yeah it's doable and you'll find that sometimes you just like keep you're in such a flow state that you keep going um so even if you don't want to do the thing, you know how like, I don't know, they say that a lot about like working out. It's like, if you don't feel like working out, just do it for five minutes yeah. and then you probably will keep going. Yeah. And I think that's true with this too. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a great, I think it's a great way to practice presence in life um, in a way where you can like really experience the reward of that Yeah. in a way that our sort of um, modern life, like we can relate to that. We're like, cool, I accomplished something. If that makes sense. It does. I'm going to give it a go. So good. I would love it if you could give us an example, an easy example that our listeners could do today to just try and get into meditating. Okay, great. So um, what I'll do is give you a few sort of tips on how to sit, when to sit, where to sit. And then I'll give you um, a breathing practice that you can kind of do anywhere, even if you're not actually sitting for meditation. So where to sit. 
I think it's really great to be able to carve out a little bit of space in your house, even if it's just a cushion on the floor in the corner of your bedroom, which is what my situation looks like. Because you have three kids, don't you? I do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they're quite young. Six, four, and two. So yeah. it's a straight up circus at my house. <laughs> um, so yeah, I literally have a cushion in the corner of my bedroom. I like to do it at the same time every day if possible. So it becomes part of my routine, but it also becomes part of the family routine and the family rhythm. And they respect it and understand that that's what I'm doing. But I also think beyond just like them sort of like being a party to that routine, it's also you're setting a really beautiful example, Mm. not only for if you don't have children, for the people that you live with, for your partner, for your flatmates, for your family, Having someone meditate regularly and then witnessing the changes that happen, it's it's powerful and it's it makes other people want to get hooked. So, yes, make yourself a little bit of space, even if it's just like a cushion so that you don't have to sort of go like, where am I going to meditate today? You just get up and you know you're heading there. Um, how to sit. You just want to have a straight spine. My teacher, Rod Stryker, says the straighter the spine, the clearer the mind. So that's a really easy thing to remember. Having your hips a little bit above your knees is helpful. So that's where the cushion comes in. Um, If you've ever tried to like just sit cross-legged on the floor, it's actually not comfortable or conducive to sitting for any length of time. So if you can put a cushion sort of like right under your butt so that your hips are maybe... I don't know, four inches. What is that in centimeters? Or Like about 10 centimeters, okay. so I think. <laughs> I've been here 10 years and I still don't get the <laughs> metric system. Um, so like 10 centimeters, depending on your height, um, that's going to make it so much more comfortable. It's going to open your body up and help your spine be in alignment much more effortlessly than sitting flat on the floor. A chair is totally cool. Um, just keep your feet firmly planted on the ground and scoot your buns forward so that you're not like tempted to lean back into the chair. You can lay down. I don't recommend it unless you're, you know, unable to sit up. I think sitting up is that posture of being alert and attentive is really helpful in establishing a practice. And then when to do it, I like morning just because I feel like it sets the tone for my day. And I love to set an intention for my day after I've meditated. So it just feels like all the fresh feels. Midday, like before lunch is great, especially if maybe you have leaned into like eating disordered eating or things like that, or you struggle um, to be fully present when you're eating. That's a great way to sort of like check in. Um, or before you pick up the kids or after you get off work, that's fine. Before bed is another favorite because it really is so such a nice way to sort of unwind. Whatever times, just pick one and commit to that for a period of time, whether it's seven days, 21 days, 40 days. Commit to doing it at the same time for the same length of time in the same place where possible. And that is half the battle because you've already just made the commitment and you're you're answering all of those questions in advance. And then as far as a breathing technique, this is box breathing is such a great tool to have up your sleeve because you can you can do it as sort of like I always say that breathing or like pranayama as it's known in yoga is like meditation foreplay. <laughs> because it's like primes your nervous system to help your brain slow down 
it's the easiest way to impact your nervous system. And so if you can get your body into a calmer state, it's going to be a lot easier to sit for meditation and to have a better shot at having some of those, like doing less meditation sit-ups, if that makes sense. Yeah. This technique you can do just as you sit down for meditation, you're preparing, but you can also do it anytime that you're sort of feeling stressed or overwhelmed. I do it a lot on airplanes. It's great before bedtime as well to just calm down. So all you're going to do is imagine just a square and your inhale is going to be for the same length as a pause. So a retention of the inhale and the same length exhale and then the same length holding out on the on the emptiness, on the out breath. So if you just close your eyes and imagine a square and as you inhale and you can do it for any number, we could just start with four. So we could inhale for four. So inhale, two, three, four, pause, two, three, four, exhale, two, three, four, pause, two, three, four, and that's a box breath. So you can change the ratio. Like I said, it could be two, it could be four, depending on your breath capacity. Start with something that feels really comfortable and maybe just set a timer for one minute, two minutes, um, or you could count out 10 rounds, but that will have a profound effect on your nervous system. And yogis use it, but so do like special ops army dudes, apparently. I actually felt really relaxed just listening to you count. Yeah, it is really relaxing. (laughs) I have one more question for you. Is meditation really a cure-all? The reason I ask that question is because I feel like a lot of people say meditation basically saved them. So I wonder, can it be the one thing that changes everything? If I had to give a yes or no answer, I would say yes. (laughs) You know, science is showing so many incredible outcomes from regular meditation and mindfulness practice. And I think that there's a lot of proof there in terms of the effect that it has on our body, the effect that it has on our brain chemistry, the ability that it has to help us become our best selves is not just anecdotal, but it's becoming scientific. And there's more and more evidence and more and more studies coming out. So something I'm really passionate about in the book is helping people uncover what their personal reason for meditating is and what their why is. Because if you have a really clear reason for meditating, you're much more likely to stick to the practice and therefore to experience the benefit of a regular practice. And I think that when you can get really clear on those reasons, sitting down to actually do it, becomes effortless. Mm. I love that. Um, Something I did want to go back to before we finish our chat is you talked about being a really huge supporter of helping people freestyle their own life. (laughs) So with meditation as a start, do you have any other advice for any other women listening who, who love that idea, who don't necessarily fit into a box and would love to be doing something else, but they don't know where to start? Mm. Yes, yes. I mean, can we record another episode, girl? (laughs) I have much to say. Um, You know, I think this, I think like the first place to start is to like, you are here to be you. And any effort that you put towards hiding or shaming parts of yourself is wasted effort. 
embrace yourself and embrace the dichotomies and the things that don't necessarily fit together. Because if you think about the most interesting people that you know, they don't fit in a box. No. They just don't. So I think the more that you can just own that and feel really empowered to be yourself fully, it's a great place to start. And then, you know, I think follow follow the inklings. Like for me, I think what's really curious is like looking at the proclivities that you had as a child. Mm -hmm. So for me, I was writing books like with my dad when I was, you know, really young. And so it's sort of funny now that I've, you know, had my first book published because it's like, of course. Yeah. When I got a publishing deal, it was like almost, even though I'd been working towards writing a book and publishing a book, it was sort of like when it actually happened and I saw my book in real life, it was like, holy shit. Like, (laughs) oh yeah, this was my lifelong dream. And I just had never actually like articulated it in that way. So and my reason for for saying that is that like sometimes I think we don't have to be as effortful and like goal oriented. I think we just have to do the next right thing. That's a Glennon Doyle quote, which I love, which is like, just do the next right thing. And I think the more that you can follow your intuition and follow the feeling and do the next thing that sort of like captures your interest, do that because it's just an exploration and that's what we're here to do is just explore the edges of ourselves. And again, that ties back to where we started our conversation, which is imperfection. If imperfection, if doing many things imperfectly is your goal, you're going to have a much cooler life mm-hmm. than having a small, perfect, straight line living in a box. Well, speaking about perfection, that was a perfect way to end the chat. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that chat with Caitlin. If you'd like to find out more about her work, visit her website, caitlincady.com. Now, before you go, someone else who we'd like to get to know better is you. Who do you want to hear on the show? What topics do you want us to cover? Let us know via Insta or Facebook. And if you've been enjoying Uninterrupted, we'd absolutely love if you could leave a review. Thank you, legends. See you next time. The health advice contained in this episode is of a general nature. If you're concerned about any issues, see a health professional. If you feel affected by any of the issues raised in this podcast, help is available. Call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Contact Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 or beyondblue.org.au and the Butterfly Foundation at thebutterflyfoundation.org.au.